The Creed in Slow Motion by Monsignor Ronald Knox Sermon 2 I Believe in God, Part 2 When Adam and Eve first sinned in paradise, it was their instinct to avoid the presence of their Creator. It's not easy, and I don't think it's very important, to decide how much of the detail in the story are likely are to be taken quite literally, or how much we may think of them as a poetic description of what happened. But what we are told is that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the afternoon air, and they were afraid, so they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. If we find it difficult to be certain how literally we ought to take the details of the story, we are not to be tempted to doubt, for a moment, that the story is true. For this story of the fall is a story we live through, most of us, not once, but many times in the course of our lives. It is a drama in which we ourselves are the actors, and the story repeats itself. When we have sinned, the thought of God makes us uncomfortable, and we try to forget it. And the human race, which is always sinning, is always trying to forget God. Man tries to shut himself up, to hide himself away, in the forest of created things which God has given us for our enjoyment. He tries to pretend to God himself that God doesn't exist. But as he looks out through the long avenues of the tree trunks, first down one, then down another, he sees at the end of each vista the same sight. It is the face of God. He cannot get away from God, even if he wants to. What do I mean? Why this, that even if no revelation had come to us through Jesus Christ, we should still have to admit, if we would be honest with ourselves, the existence of God, however unwelcome the thought might be. The creatures that surround us in our own life in this world of creatures leads us to the acknowledgement that God exists. If we take away our favorite trains of thought and follow it far enough, it spreads away into the distance like a forest ride, and we see very far off God at the end of it. It's an inveterate habit of man to ask why. Most of us have been told off about it in the nursery and discouraged from doing it. I remember once traveling in the train with a small boy who pointed to the clock at Branbury Station and asked, What does that clock say? And the mother said, It's a quarter to two. And the small boy said, Why is it a quarter to two? A child like that grows up into a scientist and spends the whole life asking why. All our science comes from the habit of humans asking for the reason for something, our ineradicable belief that every event must have a cause. And when we push that habit as far as it will go, all we have done is to weave a long chain of causes, each one deepening on the next. Why do you twist your ankle? Because the low gate in the garden was shut, and you didn't expect it to be. Why was it shut? To keep the little pigs out. Why were the little pigs running loose? Because there wasn't enough to feed for them, and they were put into a sty. Why wasn't there enough feed for them? Because ships get torpedoed in the Atlantic. Why do ships get torpedoed in the Atlantic? Because we're at war with Germany. Why are we at war with Germany? And so on. The series of causes stretches back and back, and you never get to the end of it. But you see, it can't really be infinite. Because an infinite series of causes all depends on one thing or another wouldn't be sufficient explanation of anything. 
Somewhere at the end of that chain there must be a first cause, which is not caused by anything which went before it. And that first cause is God. His face looks down at us, and we try to run away from him, looks down this long avenue of causality, and reminds us that he made us. We did not make ourselves. All right, says the scientist, we won't talk about causes and effects if it has these uncomfortable consequences. We will content ourselves with observing the pattern of things as we find it in our experience, the wonderful order that there is in nature, and so on. But you see, that doesn't make them any better off. Order can only be an expression of a mind. And who was it that put that order into nature, which we discover with our scientific instruments? If you take a razor blade, for example, and a blade of grass, and put them under a powerful microscope, you will find that the edge of the razor isn't really straight at all. It's all hopelessly jagged and uneven, so that you can't even imagine why your father doesn't cut himself shaving every morning instead of just some of the mornings he shaves. But the blade of grass is absolutely even all along, not even a dent in it. Now who did that? Not you or I. The more we try to map out the pattern of nature, the more we are driven to the conclusion that it exhibits the working of a mind greater than any human mind. And this creative mind we call God. We have looked along a fresh avenue of experience, and still we see his face looking down at us through the trees. That's the story we read in the world around us. If we look instead at ourselves, at the place we human beings occupy in the universe, it's the same thing. Man asks himself, what am I here for? The cow is here to give me milk. The sheep are here to give me wool. The bees are here to give me honey. I am here to give who what? Have you ever asked yourself that? What am I here for? What is the use of my existing? Perhaps you have an easy answer by saying, Oh, I exist to keep my mother happy. She'd be frightfully upset if anything happened to me. Well, yes, but then what does she exist for? Don't say she exists to keep me happy. That gets us back into a circle. Like that silly game when we had a dozen people all sit on one another's knees. Number 12 sitting on the knees of number 1, and then one falls down and you all fall down. I dare say you know what that game is. A nice, quiet game in the dormitory. If, on the other hand, you say that your mother exists to keep your father happy, then we shall have to ask what he exists for, and so on and on endlessly. In the last resort, there must be someone for whom to serve, whose purposes, everything else exists. And that somebody is God. His face is looking at us again, down the new avenue in the forest. Or perhaps man asks himself, what is this all about right and wrong? What do I mean when I say it is my duty to do this or that? It isn't very often what I want to do. We very seldom refer to duty except when we're talking about something we don't want to do. Duty is only an abstract word. Are we, living human beings, going to have our conduct dictated, dictated to us by some mere abstraction? No, the thing which we don't like to do, yet isn't our will. It mustn't be somebody else's will for us, but whose? In the long run, there must be somebody whose will is the only thing that matters for any human being in the world. And that somebody is God. One more avenue, and still the same face looking down at us. There's no getting away from it, whichever way we turn. God is the first cause which lies behind all other causes. God is the mind which expresses itself in the pattern of creation. God is the last end or purpose for which everything else exists. God is the supreme will which imposes moral duties on mankind. <clears throat> Always, you see, if we try to run away from God... 
We shall see him in the distance like that, an uncomfortable fact in the background, but only if we try to run away from him. If we want God, if we want to try to find him, then the process is quite easy. And we find him not at all at a distance, but close to us. Not an uncomfortable fact, but a comforting friend. You were made up of matter and spirit. Your body, the thing which is in the way when somebody runs into you on the stairs, is matter. Your soul, the thing in which thinks, the thing in which loves, is spirit. Which belongs to a higher order, your body or your spiral. Your soul, obviously. It gives you a richer life than the animals have. Your rabbits, for example, can't do multiplication tables or write home, but you can. Spirit, then, is of a higher order than matter. It rules it. It is the explanation for it. But your spirit doesn't rule the universe. Isn't the explanation of the universe, nor is mine, nor is Hitler's. There must be, then, a spirit which rules the universe of matter. And a spirit not confined and limited as yours and mine are. That is God. Now all day long your attention is directed outwards towards the world of matter, your food, and the sunshine and the airplane flying overhead. Look inward instead. Look into your own soul. There is God. He is present to your soul, just as the sunshine is present to your body, only much closer. How could it be otherwise? Spirit is not confined by space, therefore distance cannot divide you from God. God is unlimited, therefore he is everywhere. You cannot be separated from God. The only thing that divides us from him is the fact that we don't want to think about him enough. We don't want to love him as we ought to. You don't have to think of him as far away in the end of a long avenue. He's here. Not believe in God? Of course you do. You couldn't believe in yourself otherwise. You couldn't call your soul your own. And as a rule, people who don't believe in God don't believe in themselves. They can't call their souls their own. That is how come they believe in Hitler or some nonsense of that kind. But you say, if the fact of God's existence is so obvious, where is the necessity of believing in it? Surely belief only comes in where there's something you can't prove for yourself, something you have to take on trust. Well, it's quite true that the church doesn't expect us to believe in God merely because Jesus Christ has revealed him to us. The fact that God exists is something she tells us which we ought to be able to find for ourselves. What Jesus Christ has done to us is reveal to us more clearly what God is, that he is our Father, for example. We shall have to talk about that next Sunday. Meanwhile, it's important that we should go on reminding ourselves that we believe in God, not so much because it is difficult to believe that he exists, as because it is difficult to realize he exists. Our minds turn, don't they, so naturally towards creatures and away from God. Ever since the fall, the human mind is like a dog-eared corner in one of your textbooks. You know how one is continually straightening it out, always finding that it's turned down again by the next time the book is opened? We have been warped over the straight ever so since the fall. We are always thinking about creatures, about our comforts, about our plans, about our fellow men, about our minds traveling back, and then to God if we turn them to a deliberate act towards him. And so we have got to go on reminding ourselves, I believe in God, or we should find it difficult to remember that he was there after all. It is such a long time since we thought about him last, and he, he's so quiet about it. Well, I expect you are still thinking we haven't got very far with the credo. Last week we only managed the words, I believe, and even this week we've only got as far as I believe in God. There's not so much to get excited about so far. We are so wrong. 
If you think that, you're absolutely wrong. There couldn't possibly be anything more exciting than the news that God exists. It turns everything right around, makes everything fall into place, redresses the balance. What matters is no longer me, but God. He, not I, is the center of existence. His will matters, not mine. It is what he thinks about, what he thinks about people that makes the difference. Not what I think about them. His glory, not my glory, is the thing that I live for. A hundred years hence, when you and I are dead and gone, it will still matter whether the human race is free or enslaved, is happy or miserable, because there will still be a God reigning in heaven, then as now. Forgive me if you can't understand that. Not because you're stupid, but because you're young. When you are young, you can't always fall back in yourself for company, unless you are a very melancholy kind of person. When you go to bed tonight, you can't get to sleep yet. You can't be quite happy thinking about your own plans and your own pleasures, your own friends and your own ambitions. You can lie there daydreaming and tell yourself stories about what you're going to do when you grow up and what sort of man you're going to marry. But when you've had 50 years or more of your own company, it ceases to be quite so enjoyable. You've got bored with it. And that breeds a dreadful loneliness inside the human soul, unless the human soul has learned and has managed to remember and still believes that God exists. You have begun to see yourself as a pretty second-rate sort of article. Your prospects of getting your way over this and that don't seem so frightfully unimportant. Your judgment of things and of people doesn't seem to matter so much. What the map of Europe will be like in a hundred years' time is a speculation that doesn't much interest you. Then, to believe that God exists means that you have something better still you have somebody to fall back upon. Everything still matters because there is God's will to be taken into account, God's glory to be considered. I believe in God. Forty years from now, if you keep then the faith you have now, you will be thanking God that God exists.